Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're looking this morning at the first 16 verses of Acts chapter 8. I'm going to read uh, that passage. I'd like to ask Ariel if you'd pray for the ministry of the Word this morning. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That is, of course, Stephen. And all that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him. And Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in that city, and now there was a certain man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news, about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Well, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, it's with great enjoyment we hear the reading of this passage, seeing the work of your gospel, disrupting the people, accompanied by power from our high. And Lord, we know that we have received the Holy Spirit, although not with the signs that these people did see. And yet we rejoice that you have bestowed the helper on us, that we might understand your word, that we might hear with, with hearing ears and a heart that understands what you would have us learn out of your scripture. To that end, Lord, I pray that the work of your servant will be blessed this day, that your Holy Spirit would speak through him that the, the exercise of his mind would be to the blessing of your people and all of it would be to your glory. Amen. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We saw last week in looking at the, the uh, life, the very short life, the very short ministry of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, that as he preached the gospel and as he called upon the people of Israel not to be the stiff-necked people that their heritage 
had indicated they would be. They were enraged. And the word that was used there in, in the Greek is, is very intense. It's as if a fire was lit within their breasts, burning out in violence and hatred towards Stephen and without any due process of law, taking him out of the city and stoning him to death, leading that vicious attack upon Stephen was Saul, the disciple of Gamaliel, Saul of Tarsus, whom we meet again here in chapter 8. And Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now the verse, first few verses of chapter 8 are a prelude by the writer Luke introducing to us a persecution that is breaking out upon this infant church. Up to this time, we read that they had favor with both God and man, but now man has turned against God and has turned against his people, the church of Jesus Christ. And the leader of this movement, the center of this movement is, is Saul, who was, as we'll read later in, in Philippians, in his own letter, he was, he was zealous for the law, above his countrymen. He was a Pharisee, a Pharisee, and as to the church, a persecutor. And so Luke introduces this persecution in chapter 8 in the first three verses, but really it is but a prelude to chapter 9 where we read in verse 1, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Saul will, of course, become the Apostle Paul. And so we see here uh, the dynamic of the growth of the fruit of Judaism within the nation of Judaism. Christianity is not a new religion. It is the culmination of the covenant of Abraham. It is the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, bringing the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of God to Abraham, to all the nations. Or as Jesus put it, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Only the people of God in Israel will not accept this development of their own religion. They will not accept this fulfillment of their own covenant. They will not accept the promised one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And leading this, this rejection of God's will and of God's redemption is Saul. Later on, when he becomes Paul, and he himself is being persecuted for the way in which he now walks. He said that he persecuted this way unto the death, binding and putting both man and women, men and women into prison. He will admit himself later on to be that persecutor, that one who certainly deserved no grace and no mercy from the Lord, for he persecuted him. But he would also be the one who would be met on that road to Damascus, in the process of his persecuting that way, he would be met by the one he was persecuting. And so the story is shifting from the ministry of Peter to the ministry of Paul. And Luke is very skillfully making that transition. But in the same way, he is showing an irrevocable breach developing within Judaism. Because up to this point, there is no difference, as it were, between Judaism and Christianity. Because this was the Jewish Messiah whom the Christians were receiving and worshiping. And so they considered themselves not Christians as different from Jews. 
But as Jews who were faithfully following, as it were, the, the pillar of smoke and the cloud as it moved in God's redemptive history, they were following the Messiah, whom the whole nation had been looking for and waiting for. But now, because of the hardness that was coming upon the Jews and the Jewish nation, and the very fire that they had lit within their own breasts in hatred of God, remember, the Lord said to Paul or to Saul on that road, Saul, Saul, he didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? That hatred was not against Stephen. It was not against Peter or John. It was against the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. And so an irrevocable breach is forming between Judaism as it was in Judea in the first century, and Christianity, the fulfillment of Judaism as it was meant to be. It is the fulfillment of the Lord's own prophecy in Matthew chapter 23. As Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for the last time, He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Historically, that's what we're witnessing. We, we think when we read the book of Acts that we're witnessing the birth and the growth of the church. We're witnessing the death of Jerusalem and, Juda and Judaism as it was under the old covenant. By the grace of God, Jerusalem and and Judea and Judaism were given the grant of one generation. It's as if Hezekiah, when he prayed to the Lord, was given a grant of 15 more years before the prophecy of his death would be fulfilled. So also Jerusalem and Judea were given a grant of one generation. But the Lord had already said that upon that generation would be held all the righteous blood of the martyrs from Abel to Zechariah. And to that blood, Jerusalem now begins to add the martyrs of the church of Jesus Christ. And Saul among them. Jerusalem and Judea and Judaism will be destroyed in the fire lit by themselves. The hatred that they, that they have toward this way, and that's what they call it, a halakha. It is a way of life. And they hate it. The hatred that they show toward the disciples of Jesus Christ is hatred towards Jesus Christ himself, and that toward God. But the same grace of God that plucked Lot from a burning Sodom would pluck Saul from, as it were, a burning Judaism. Saul is, is brought out here as a, as a signal example of the divine grace of God, proving to us that no man merits the salvation of God, no man sets himself up as worthy, of God's saving grace. But even such a one as Saul, who in his zeal for Judaism is persecuting God's own redeemed. In his, in his zeal for God, he is disobeying God, seeking out a righteousness of his own, as he would later say his, his countrymen continued to do. God would graciously pluck him out of the fire and make him an apostle and an apostle to the Gentiles. And that in and of itself is an irony 
that the persecutor, the Pharisee among Pharisees, would become the apostle to the Gentiles. But we haven't got to the Gentiles yet. That, that's a bit too much of a leap yet for our narrator, Luke. We have to go first to another group of people who were despised by the Jews, perhaps in a way even more so than they despised the Gentiles, the Samaritans. We read that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The word there in the Greek is caruso. It's a word used for preaching or proclaiming, and it is distinct from teaching, and it is quite distinct from offering. The evangel, the, the, evangel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not something that Philip went down to Samaria to offer the people. He had good news, and so he went and proclaimed it. He went and preached it, and he required in his preaching, I'm sure, the repentance of those who heard. So who were these Samaritans? Well, we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the scope of the witness of the disciples of Jesus Christ would be Jerusalem first, then Judea and Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. Now, had Jesus left out that one word, Samaria, everything would have been fine. There would have been no challenge issued to the disciples or to the early church. Because what he could have meant by leaving out Samaria is simply Jews. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, of course, and then to the dispersion, the diaspora, the Jews that over the centuries, either by the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans, had been taken from Judea and now lived throughout the Mediterranean world and into the Middle East. He may have just meant, you will be my witnesses to the Jews throughout the world. But he had to say Samaria. Later on, the disciples are going to learn that the uttermost parts of the world mean Gentiles, as well as the Jews of the dispersion. You see, there's, there's, a, there's a radical element in what Jesus is doing here. It really isn't all that radical, because the covenant to Abraham specifically said that in your seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. So this isn't anything new, but because the understanding of the Jews and their place in God's plan and in the world had so hardened in the centuries after the exile, most of them could not entertain the thought that God's grace would extend to Samaritans, much less to Gentiles. So who were these Samaritans? Well, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes that broke away from Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. It was in the tribe of Ephraim, who was himself a son of Joseph. It was the double blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh that was given to Joseph. It became the capital of, of a kingdom, and we read in the books of Chronicles and of Kings that the kings of the northern tribes, which were called Israel, as the southern two tribes were called Judea. These kings were not righteous men. Not one of them is said to follow after his father David, by the way, none of them had David as their father because it was not a Davidic kingdom. They set up, Jeroboam, the first king of the northern tribes, 
set up two idols, two golden calves, one in Dan and one in Bethel, who were to be their gods. Now, we may wonder what happened to those ten tribes, and we would be in the, in the company of many imaginative people, um, some of whom had the ten tribes migrating to Great Britain. Okay? Um, I don't, don't think there's any basis for that either in Scripture or history. What happened to those ten tribes? Did God actually write off ten of the twelve tribes of Israel? Well, if we read the Scriptures carefully, we will realize that after Jeroboam set up his idols in the north and the south of that territory, many from all of the tribes left and migrated down to Jerusalem. Representatives of all ten tribes that had broken away from the Davidic house migrated away from the rebellion of their own kin and moved into the realm of the Davidic kingdom and of the Levitical priesthood. So there were all twelve tribes represented in Judea throughout the centuries that would follow. But the northern tribes rebelled against God, and then they rebelled against Assyria. And that was a mistake. Because in 722 BC, they were conquered, and they were carried away. Now, we are told in Scripture that when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered the southern kingdom about 150 years later, they were exiled as a people to Babylon. From which, 70 years later, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, they were brought back. They were returned to the land as a people. Not so the northern tribes. We do not, do not know where they were sent. The Assyrians had a habit of not keeping their conquered people together, but scattering them to the four winds of their empire. And then, in order to kill not only the people and their identity, but also their religion, to bring people from other areas of their empire into the conquered territory. So when they overran Samaria and the northern tribes, those people were, were not exiled, they were dispersed. And in their place came people from other parts of, the, of Mesopotamia. So those who were allowed to remain, because they didn't carry everybody off, that, was, that, would, be, uh, that would be impossible. Okay, logistically, those who remained became a half-breed of Jews and other, other ethnicities. And their religion became an amalgamation of Judaism and the other religions, Zoroastrianism and other religions of the Assyrian Empire. And so the Samaritans became, or the Sumerians, later called Samaritans, they became a sort of mongrel race. They were part Jewish, but not pure Jewish. They could claim a heritage to Israel, but that heritage had been corrupted. And because of that corruption, their brethren in the southern tribes, even when they returned, and especially when they returned from the exile, would not accept them. We know that righteous, faithful Jews would cross over the River Jordan when they were traveling north. And they would travel through the desert on the eastern side of the Jordan rather than to pass through Samaria. But then we read in John chapter 4 where our Lord freely goes right through and even stops and speaks not only to a Samaritan, but a woman. Not only a woman, 
a woman of ill repute. Okay? This, this man's pretty radical. Sitting there talking with a Samaritan woman at a well in Samaria. They had their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And that is what the woman alludes to when she says, Your people say that in Jerusalem God must be worshipped, but our people say it's here on Mount Gerizim that God is worshipped. And Jesus gives that answer, Woman, I say to you the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall God be worshipped. You see, he's, he's planting the seeds of the kingdom of God that will, as the prophecy of Daniel tells us, grow into the entire earth. But what these Jewish disciples here in Acts need to learn is that Jews might be the foundation of that church, and they will be. But it will be made up of living stones from every tongue, tribe, and nation, including the Samaritans. We read in John chapter 4, verse 9, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Now they would have dealings with Gentiles, which is why I said earlier that their enmity to the Samaritan was probably greater. As to the Gentile, they simply wrote them off as kind of non-people until they became proselytes and entered into Judaism. The Gentile was a non-person. He was dirty. But they would do dealings with them, business dealings as it were, not with Samaritans. If they were starving, they would not stop at a Samaritan cafe. If they were weary and weak from travel, they would not stop in a Samaritan tavern or inn. They had no dealings, except for Philip, who goes down there preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the people start to listen, just as they did when Jesus was at the well with the woman. They were amazed at his teaching, and they believed in him. And maybe these were the same people who first responded to Philip, because it hasn't been all that long. And they hear Philip preaching of not, not just the, the teachings of Jesus, but the death and resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the one that the woman said, we, we know that when Messiah comes, he will explain everything. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. And now Philip comes down and, and, and explains to them what Jesus was, what he has done. But there's a challenge to our understanding in this passage. And one that has divided the church and continues to divide the church with regard to the salvation that God brought to the Samaritans. For we read in verse 14, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them... Peter and John. Well, okay, Philip was just a deacon, right? He wasn't an apostle. And, you know, this is kind of a new thing. So let's go down there and make sure as apostles that everything's copacetic, you know, everything's being done according to the book. You know, it's like franchises, you know, they started at McDonald's and now the manager's going to come down, make sure everything's okay. Is this church in Samaria really real? Well, we might be able to deal with that. But then we read... They came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had merely been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Has that ever bothered you? You know, what, what's up with this? Okay, well, it's bothered the church for quite a while. 
Okay? When the Samaritans believed Philip's preaching, as we read early, and were baptized, were they saved? Yeah, that's the question that the, the following verses demand that we ask. Because we read, they heard the word, they believed the word, and they submitted to baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. Were they saved? Well, if they were saved, how is it that they didn't have the Holy Spirit? Peter earlier said, repent and be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit who has been promised. But we read here, they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so this has led to um, a lot of different views, two in particular that I'm going to talk about. Is this a two-step process? The first step being believing and water baptism. And the second step being receiving the Holy Spirit. Well, unless we conclude that they weren't saved by believing, then yes it is. If we conclude that they were not saved when they believed, then they are saved on this second step when they receive the Holy Spirit. But that creates a problem because what step were they in? What were they? What was their, what was their condition before God when they believed the gospel and received baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, well, well, they were no longer lost, but they weren't yet saved? That's a problem, isn't it? You know, I, I teach in, in, in chemistry that when a chemical reaction is taking place, there, there's a time in which the reactants have broken apart, but they haven't quite yet formed the products. It's called the intermediate state. Are we in an intermediate state between the time that we are unsaved and the time that we're saved? And that intermediate state is when we believed and were baptized, but we have not yet received the Holy Spirit. You think, well, that's ridiculous. Well, not so ridiculous as you might believe. Now, many of you are familiar with the teachings of, of uh, Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement concerning the receiving, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They teach a two-step process. But many of you may not be familiar with the fact that the Roman Catholic Church also teaches a two-step process. And this passage is used by both of those groups, as diverse as they are. Both of those groups look to this passage and say, see, there's two steps. There's water baptism and there's spirit baptism. Okay? Well, I think if we, if we accept that they were saved when they believed, at least most of them, okay? Because Simon is in this group here, and we won't have time this morning to talk about Simon. The Lord willing, we'll talk about Simon next week. But most of them, we we're going to assume that when they believed the teaching, the preaching of the gospel, when they received baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were saved. And yet, for some reason, they did not receive the Holy Spirit. That's two steps. So the next question is, one that I've mentioned throughout this study, when we read something in the book of Acts, is it normative or is it historical? Now, what that means is, on the one hand, does it represent the way things should always be? That's normative. 
Or is it something that happened because of the historical circumstance? We might use an example. Let's say somebody has a piece of property and they sell it and they bring half of the money to the elders. And they say, this is it. This is all of it. We sold this for this much and here it is. Should they die? Well, that would be normative, wouldn't it? You know, they're lying to the elders, to the Holy Spirit, and as Ananias and Sapphira did, they, they would die, wouldn't they? Well, it doesn't happen that way, does it? In fact, that's somewhat ridiculous. People are lying, unfortunately, to the Holy Spirit all the time. And God doesn't manifest His, His displeasure by bringing about their immediate death. But what about this? This is a two-step process that deals with our very salvation. Is it normative? If it is, then those of us who perhaps have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we're still in that, well, limbo. Well, limbo is actually a place for people in just that state. You see, the Roman Catholic Church says that the first step is water baptism, which occurs when the child is an infant, and that washes away original sin. But that person <clears throat> does not receive the gift of the Holy Spirit until their confirmation. So if they should die between that baptism and confirmation, they're not assured of ultimate salvation. All they can be assured of is an eternity of painless nothingness. Not the presence of God, nor the suffering of purgatory, but rather limbo. Okay? So, you see, the Catholic Church teaches a two-step process. The Charismatics, of course, believe that, that you are a believer when you profess faith and receive baptism. But you're only a carnal believer. You're, you're a fleshly believer. You're, you're not yet a true spiritual believer until you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in most cases, that is evidenced by the speaking of tongues, which is what we assume happened here, and we learn will later happen among the household of Cornelius. I would say of the two, the Charismatics have a stronger scriptural case than the Catholics. But it still presents us with a problem because if this indeed is a two-step process unto salvation, then Peter's first preaching of the gospel in his messages would be false. As I said earlier, Peter says, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what we read these people having done with regard to the preaching of Philip. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins which is what is keeping us out of God's grace to begin with. Your sins have made a separation between you and God. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No indication of any delay, nor any, any indication of the apostles affecting that through the laying on of their hands. We just read that over 3,000 were added to the church that day. No distinction between carnal and spiritual so, even Paul, who's not yet a member of the church, later on in Romans chapter 8, he says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Okay? So, if we believe that believing the Word preached 
Receiving the Lord Jesus Christ and being baptized into his name brings salvation. Then it must also bring the Holy Spirit. Now, if we believe that salvation is a work of God before it is a work of man, in other words, it is God regenerating a hard heart, and then that heart responding in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, then actually the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the first thing that happens. Because He is the one who brings that rebirth to the heart. So we have a two-step process here in Acts chapter 8, but it is not normative. It is unusual. It is not something that God intended to be continued generation after generation throughout the church, but rather it's something that we're going to see not only here in Samaria, but we're going to see again in Cornelius' household, and then we're going to see again later on in Ephesus, among a group of men who had only received the teaching and baptism of John. Why are we reading this? Well, a visible manifestation of the gift of the Holy Spirit, as at Pentecost, was the only thing that would convince believing Jews that the Samaritans and the Gentiles were equal with them in the covenant of Abraham. Were grafted in, were brought in without any separation, without having become Jews first, without receiving the proselyte baptism, but rather the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. These people were raised to the same level. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Or we might say neither Jew nor half-Jew, Samaritan. There's no distinction. How would you ever convince people who for generations have been taught of the purity of their race as the people of God and also of the impurity of the half-breed Samaritan and of the Gentile? How would you ever verbally convince them unless God himself intervened without any mistake? And gave to them, Peter would use this very same argument when he reported back to the council in Jerusalem regarding what happened at Cornelius' house. He said, how could I deny them baptism when they had received the same gift of the Holy Spirit that we received at the beginning? That's what they needed. It was God's way of saying, there's going to be no levels in this church. There's going to be no different churches, a body of Christ who are Jews, a body of Christ who are Samaritans, a body of Christ who are Gentiles, and then within that there'll be a body of Christ who are Romans, a body of Christ who are Gauls, a body of Christ who are Spanish. No. There would be one body, one baptism, one spirit, one Lord. And he was going to make sure everybody understood that by waiting until the apostles came down, and really the two chief apostles, Peter and John, with their own eyes to see God do with the Samaritans what he did with the Jews at Pentecost. God, as one writer says, is giving a divine veto on schism in the infant church, a schism which could have slipped almost unnoticed into the Christian fellowship, as converts from the two sides of the Samaritan curtain found Christ without finding each other. Oh, how often that happens in the church. Whereby our own prejudices, our own racism, 
our own consideration of what pure Christian is, we have people who find Christ who never find each other. We have whites who find Christ who never find blacks. Blacks who find Christ who never find whites. Whites who never find Hispanics. Hispanics who never find Asians. All of the different tribes that were divided by God at the Tower of Babel. All alike in sin. All alike in Adam. Now all redeemed in Christ. And yet not restored. Do we honestly think that in the new earth there will be such divisions? Do we honestly think that in the new earth there will be only white people? I, I think we probably picture that. And, and there's some justification for that because that's what we are. And when we, we see, for example, pictures of Jesus, which I don't agree with, so I'm not advocating them, but you've seen them. You know, people in Africa, are their Jesus's white? People in Indonesia, the Christians in Indonesia who have portraits of Jesus, are, are they white? No, they're not. Because we see, how do I say this? We, we see him as we are. For we know nothing else. But that's the same as, as God saying to his people, you consider to be, to, just, to be just such a one as you. When we envision Jesus, when we envision God, we, we make of him in our image. And we have to be reminded, we, we don't get the, we're not granted these visible manifestations of, of union that the disciples were given and needed. But we have their word. We have the word of God where he is clearly saying there is no distinction. And so we must be constantly reminded ourselves that there is no distinction. That being a white Christian is no different than being a black Christian or a Hispanic Christian or an Asian Christian or any ethnicity, if there are others. But all are one in Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of the evangelism of the world. Stephen is called the first martyr. And last week when we spoke about Stephen, Stephen I called him the first apologist. The first in the church in writing to give a defense for the faith of Jesus Christ. Philip is called the evangelist. In fact, he's called the evangelist in chapter 21 by Luke himself. Philip the evangelist. Well, what is an evangelist? What is an evangel? Okay. In this passage, we're really introduced to that Greek word, euangelion, which is translated evangel, but we call it the gospel. And I, I wondered, why do we call it the gospel? Because the word gospel sounds like go spell, you know, like a spelling bee or something. You know, what is gospel? Well, I looked it up and I have a copy of the Oxford English Dictionary, which you need a magnifying glass to read, but it gives the origins of, of all of our English words, including the gospel, which is shortened for Godspiel, which means good tidings. Good news. That's what the word euangelion means. Now, in our day and age, it's, age, it's very possible to take nouns and turn them into uh, verbs like, you know, Google is now Googling. Uh, this afternoon, Angela and I will be Skyping with our daughter. Okay, so we take these nouns. Well, we're not the first to do that. Paul did it. 
ad nauseum, he did it all the time, okay? And this is actually another word that was turned into a verb. What Philip was actually doing was he was good newsing. He was going around with good news and doing what anybody with good news ought to do, telling others. That's really what evangelism is all about. It's about telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. But how is it that we get evangelism wrong in our day? Well, we do it by misunderstanding what that good news is. So many people, good news means health, wealth, you know, prosperity. Good news means our children coming back to the church. Good news means our marriage being healed. Or good news means finding a husband or a wife. Good news is all about what I need, or what I think I need, or what I want. And so you're only giving me good news if you're telling me what I want to hear. And frankly, that's what is filling up our churches today. That's the good news that is being proclaimed as the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you know, the word, the phrase good news and the word euangelion is actually found multiple times in the Old Testament. Obviously in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We read, for example, in Isaiah 52, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. That's the good news. Everywhere that we read of the good news, for example, in Luke chapter 2, when we read of the angels who appeared to the shepherds on that wonderful night when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and the angels said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. It was proclaiming the advent of the Savior. Okay? Again, later in Isaiah chapter 52, the Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. You see, good news is not about my health. It's not about my pocketbook, my checkbook. It's not about my marriage. It's not about my children. It's not about my house or my car or anything else. It's about my sin. And if we truly understood the impact of our sin and the destiny of our sin, then any announcement of salvation would be good news. And so that must be the heart and soul of any true evangelism, the advent of Jesus Christ, and in Him, salvation. Let us pray. Father, we thank You from the bottom of our heart and yet not enough for the great salvation that You have brought to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We acknowledge that left to ourselves, we had no hope. We had no God. We had not even a covenant. But we're lost and without God in this world. And we grant that left to our own devices, there was no just reward for our behavior than eternal punishment. But by your grace and mercy, you brought to us Jesus Christ. You brought to us the Holy Spirit. You allowed us to hear and to heed the good news of salvation. So, Father, we pray that we might be faithful to the gospel, that we would not add or take away anything to or from 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, but rather know Him alone and Him crucified for our sin and acknowledge ourselves to be nothing but sinners, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the benediction this morning from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Amen.